Well, hey, in, in honor of Father's Day, I want to do two things as we start our sermon. First of all, is, uh, is just say, thanks for being dads. And, and to say thank you, uh, I have a small gift for you guys. Um, so if you are a dad, why don't you find me in the lobby after church, and I just want to give you a small gift, okay? Um, but bring somebody to help you carry it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the second thing I want to do in honor of Father's Day is start with one of my uh, favorite prerogatives of fatherhood, the dad joke. So I'm going to tell you a few dad jokes this morning uh, because I can. You have to listen. So uh, what's orange and sounds like a parrot? A carrot. A carrot. My new thesaurus is terrible. Not only that, it's terrible. Get it? There you go. Thank you. All right, here's, here's we're getting warmed up now. You guys are ready. You're ready. You're getting warmed up. My, why do scuba divers fall backwards out of the boat? Because if they fell forward, they'd still be in the boat. All right, thank you very much. All right, very good. Uh, why do chicken coops only have two doors? Because if they had four, it'd be a sedan. Yeah. Yeah, now we're there. We've hit the sweet spot. <laughs> What's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? One is really heavy and the other is a little lighter. Very good. Very good. A magician was driving down the street when all of a sudden he turned into a driveway. Amazing. It happened all of a sudden. Two parrots are sitting on a perch. One turns to the other and says, do you smell fish? He's sitting on a perch. He was sitting on a perch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why should you always knock before opening the refrigerator? Because there might be a salad dressing. Very good. Thank you. Last one. This is my favorite. This is my favorite, so if you haven't laughed yet, please, please reserve your laughter for this joke. I have the heart of a lion and a lifetime ban from the San Diego Zoo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you know, I love, I love dad jokes, but I know that not everybody does. Uh, some of you are just being polite as you laughed. Some of you enjoy this. Some of you are taking, like, very, very good notes. Best notes you've ever taken in a sermon have happened this morning. Some of you don't like it at all. Some of you are rolling your eyes. Uh, some of you are like this family right here. Can you go ahead and put that picture up there for me? Some of you feel like that this morning, right? Some of you are the, the girl in the dress with her head down, the other guy, and some of you are like me. That's me, okay? <laughs> I, I know that that dad jokes are polarizing. You either love them or you hate them. One might even say that when a dad is in his zone telling dad jokes, he's a foreigner in a strange land. It's called the kingdom of dad jokes. He is the ruler, but the rest of his family, well, they just have to endure it in some way or another. Today I want to talk to you about a man who really was a foreigner in a strange land, who really did have to endure the hardships of a foreign land. His name was Daniel, and when he was a young man, he lived in Jerusalem, 
But Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians and he was carried off to captivity. And he lived most of his life in Babylon. That's who we're going to talk about today. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6 and we'll get started. Or I'll have it up here on the screen for you, whichever you prefer. And and, uh, if you're a guest with us today, just want to make mention of the fact that uh, we have a fill-in-the-blank sermon outline. It's in your bulletin on the back of the prayer request page. Uh, Go ahead and get that out. You'll be able to track with me and take some notes. Daniel chapter 6. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. All right, so Daniel um, is carried off into Babylonian captivity, but we can see that Daniel ends up faring better than a lot of the other people who go into captivity. In fact, he becomes one of the most powerful people in all of Babylon. There are 120 provinces, and King Darius appoints uh, a governor over each of the 120 provinces. Governor would be a good way for us to think about it. 120 provinces, 120 governors, and then there's three people who are going to supervise those governors. Daniel's one of those three people. Captivity has, has been pretty good for Daniel. He's had uh, a decent time of it, better than many other people. But he's still in captivity. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding ground for accusing Daniel will be in in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius! We're all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, King Darius, your majesty, that person will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his window open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he has always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and they found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. And they said, Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of the lions? Yeah, the king replied. That decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man Daniel 
one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you so faithfully serve, rescue you. And then a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the, sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and he couldn't sleep at all that night. And very early the next morning, the king got up and he hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I've been found innocent in his sight, and I've not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children and the lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den somehow we leave that out when we tell that to our kids then king darius sent the message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world peace and prosperity to you I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the powers of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel was a young man when Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians and he found himself in a new land, Babylon. And Babylon was different from Jerusalem. And so I want to... I jump into application a little quickly here this morning. And as I do, we're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak. So let's just do it quick, okay? Because when we do it slow, it hurts more. All right, so, so here we go. Things won't be like they were. Things won't be like they were. Daniel remembers a time, he remembers a life before Babylon, but now things are different. The good old days are gone for Daniel. He remembers walking the streets of Jerusalem, the the sights, the smells, the people, the, the protection for religious rites and customs. He remembers those things, but now the good old days are gone. And I think many of you may feel like the good old days are gone too. Many of you may feel like our country has less in common with Mayberry than it does Las Vegas. And... I think you're probably right. 
And I think that's important to hear. I think it's important to hear because when we come to grips with that, when we understand that, we realize we've got two options. We can mourn the past or we can build the future. We can mourn the past or we can start to build the future. Well, how do we do that? Right? If we want to begin to build a future instead of looking at the past and watching the future get farther and farther away from what God desires, how do we stop mourning the past and building a future that's honoring to God? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. Let's keep going and I'm going to show you. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to give you some more good news. You guys ready for some more good news? Good. Uh, you ever feel like people don't like Christians? You ever feel like people don't like Christians? Uh, you ever feel like everything goes except for Christianity? You know what I have to say about that? Those are the cards. The only option we got is to play the hand. So if you feel like people don't like Christians, well then, tough cookies, let's keep going. Daniel experienced that in a much more personal and direct way than we do. What happened to him? Well, his, his two fellow administrators, the two people that he worked with to oversee the 120 governors, uh, they, they decided, we don't like Dan very much. We don't like him. In fact, we kind of hate him. Maybe we're a little jealous of him because King Darius wants to put him over all of the kingdom, which would make him our boss. We don't really like that very much. So they just devised this little plan. Nothing major. They just wanted to kill him. You know, nothing too serious. They just wanted to end his life. And, and there's a lesson for us here. It used to be that being a Christian guaranteed you a certain amount of respect or right standing, or respectability. Maybe that's not the case anymore. Maybe it's not enough to say that I'm a Christian and be respected because of that. Maybe now we have to act like a Christian to earn people's respect. Maybe in the past it used to be where if somebody was making a deal with you, you could say, I'll do this, and you could make a handshake deal, and they'd think, well, that's okay. I know where you go to church. We can do that. We'll make that handshake deal. Maybe that's not enough to know that somebody goes to church now. Maybe, just maybe now, you have to act like a follower of Jesus to be respected by people and even then, and even when we do act like followers of Jesus, maybe we'll end up with a couple of Daniel's co-workers. They wanted to kill him. Maybe, just maybe, as we act like followers of Jesus, we'll end up surrounded by people who don't have our best interest at heart who want to see us fall, who wait eagerly for the opportunity to see us stumble or fall or fail, who even plot to trip us up. Maybe, just maybe, as we act like followers of Jesus, we'll end up working with some of Daniel's co-workers. But I want you to see how those two administrators had to go after Daniel. I want you to see how they had to go after Daniel. They didn't have any dirt on Daniel. So they had to go after his faith. They said, if we're going to get him, 
we're going to have to go after his religious practices. They had to make his faith illegal. So I want to ask you a question here real fast. If somebody wanted to tear you down, where would they point? If somebody wanted to tear you down right now, where would they point? Would it be your spending habits? Would it be your internet search history? Would it be your attitude? Would it be your Facebook posts? Where would they point? I know what mine are, and I'm working on them. I want to suggest that you work on yours too. First, you've got to admit to yourself that whatever it is is a problem. Second, you've got to admit that you can't do it on your own. You've got to ask for God's help. Third, share that struggle with someone. I had a friend of mine when I was young in my faith say that sin hates the light. Fourth, realize this. You just can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You can't remove sin's power from your life. Let me say it again. Ready? Because I think one or two of you might have an objection to what I just said. So let me say it again. You can't remove sin's power from your life. And I know where you're at. I know, I know, some of you are going, well, wait a minute, hold on. I have a neighbor who doesn't go to church, he's not religious at all, and, and he had a drinking problem, and he kicked it. He went cold turkey, and, and now he and his family are good. Well, what about him? Didn't he remove sin's power from his life? Kind of. He removed the power of that sin from his future. But we can't remove sin's power from our lives. He removed a particular sin from his future, but we can't rescue ourselves from sin's consequences in our past, and that affects the way we think about the future. Right? It, let me say that again. We can't rescue ourselves from sin's consequences in our past, and our past dictates the way we think about the future. Let me give you an illustration. I had a friend growing up, and when we were in middle school, he learned that his dad had terminal lung cancer. And uh, I, I love my buddy dearly. I spent a lot of time at his house, and I really cared a lot, really cared a lot about his dad. And we were over there one day. We were outside playing in the backyard, and I noticed that his dad lit up a cigarette. And the surprise on my face must have been very evident because he said, I know what you're thinking, Tony. He said, I know what you're thinking, Tony. You're thinking that, why is he still smoking? And I said, yeah, that, that's pretty well what I'm thinking. It just surprised me. He said, well, let me tell you. These things have already killed me. These things have already killed me. Why wouldn't I do what I love? And a lot of time, that's the way we think about sin. That's the way that we think about sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. As certain as a stage four lung cancer, sin's going to kill you. And so if I'm already dead... Why not do what I love? Why not make my time in Babylon a little bit more bearable? Why not conform and have a little bit of social acceptance with these people who I'm sharing Babylon with? The difference with sin is that God's given us a cure. Are we capable of saving ourselves? No way. Not a chance, but Jesus but Jesus is. But Jesus did come to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the dead. Jesus came to seek and save people who are stuck in their trespasses and their sins who are dead. We have a choice. 
We don't have to keep doing the things that are killing us. We can turn to Jesus. Now, does he make us choose him? Does Jesus make us choose him? No. But he sure does make it easy. Imagine for a second that there was a cure for stage four lung cancer. 100% effective. The only thing you had to do was tell your doctor, I believe that this treatment will work and I want you to give it to me. Can you imagine if there was a treatment like that? Can you imagine how many people would be cured of stage four lung cancer? Friends, you can say the same thing to God today. You can say, God, I believe that your treatment works. Would you please give it to me? Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says this. Maybe you've heard it. It says that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's a specific way that we call on the name of the Lord. Remember that one, right? Remember this. Romans 10, 13. Everybody who what on the name of the Lord will be saved? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a specific way we call. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.21 says this. It says, that, it says that baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter says that baptism is an appeal to God. It's an appeal. Does that sound like you're calling on God? When I appeal to somebody, let's say I was in trouble and I went before the judge to appeal before my innocence, I'd have to speak to him, right? I'd have to make my case. I would have to call for my own innocence. I believe the Bible tells me that baptism is how I call in the name of the Lord to be saved. And I think that you can make that appeal today. And I think that you should if you need to. When someone makes that appeal, here's what happens. All of your sins are completely and eternally forgiven. And you're given the gift of God's Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you towards Christ-likeness and away from sin-likeness. I think if you need to make that appeal today, you should. This is the middle of the sermon, so you get the whole rest of the time to think about why you should. Okay? And some of you are like, all right, man, that's a quick sermon. It's invitation time. Awesome. All right, it's the middle. Okay? Spend the rest of the time thinking about what you need to do. But when we make that appeal, when we're baptized, our sins are eternally and completely forgiven, and we're given the gift of God's Holy Spirit to lead us towards Christ's likeness. Now look at this. We've come full circle. We've come full circle. If Holy Spirit makes us more Christ-like, that's a good thing, right? Except for what happened to Jesus? His enemies invented a reason to kill him. Oh, Christianity isn't the easy choice. That's why the Apostle Paul said if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're fools and we should be pitied more than anybody else. But this isn't an if thing. The resurrection of Jesus is a belief beyond a shadow of a doubt kind of thing. And so if that's true, if we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead beyond a shadow of a doubt, let me bring us back to our original question. We can, we can mourn the past or we can build the future. So how do we build a God-honoring future? It's really simple. 
It's really simple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encapsulate it in two words here, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking that. Uh, it's called trust God. Trust God. I want to show you how Daniel trusted God. He lived in a world that uh, it wasn't the one that he knew in his youth. He knew Jerusalem. He knew how things were there. He knew his neighbors. He knew his friends. He knew the sights and the sounds and the smells of the city. And now he knows that Babylon isn't Jerusalem. He knows that where he is isn't where he was, that things are different from how they were when he was younger. What did he do? He trusted God. He worked hard, and he lived honorably. The last two are connected to trusting God, right? Daniel trusted God. He knew that God, this is important, he knew that God had authority over those who were in authority. Daniel knew that God had authority over those who were in authority. What difference does that make? Well, Daniel thought he was in Babylonian hands. Well, then why not smoke? Why not light up? It's already killed me. Why not make my time in Babylon just a little bit more bearable? Why not conform to the customs and practices of Babylon? But Daniel knew that maybe he was physically in Babylon He was in God's hands still. He knew that God had authority over those who were in authority. And maybe some of us need to be reminded of that today. Maybe the place where we live doesn't look like the place where we grew up. Can I remind you that we are in God's hands? And if we trust him, it's going to be okay. And if we trust him, we can begin to build a future that honors him. God's in control. God was in control, God is in control, and God will be in control. Maybe some of you need to hear that and nothing else. That gave Daniel the strength. That gave Daniel the strength to stand firm even when things were hard. When his fellow supervisors decided that they wanted Daniel dead and they persuaded King Darius to make a rule forbidding prayer to anyone but Darius for the next month, what did Daniel do? It was the first thing the text tells us that Daniel does. First thing Daniel does after he learns about the ruling, grace. This is a grace place, okay? What's the first thing Daniel does after he learns about this ruling? He goes and prays. He goes and prays. I was reading a book earlier this week, and the author said this. He says, Daniel did what he couldn't do. And I understand the sentiment, but I think maybe he worded it wrong. Daniel did what he had to do. Daniel did what he had to do. The thing he couldn't do was ignore God. Of course, because he's being set up, he's found praying, like prayer one, Right? They know that Daniel's going to go and pray to him, so they set up some security cams outside of Daniel's window, right? and they got the footage, and they go, aha, here you are. They weren't surprised by this. They knew he was going to go and pray. And so, very righteously, very self-importantly, and very, very humbly, they go to King Darius, and they say, well, King Darius, we've got, some, we've got some very troubling news for you. I, I hate to bring this to your attention because I, I know how you, how you feel about this guy, but Daniel was praying. Isn't it awesome? Go ahead and feed him the lions now. Come on, let's go. 
It's going to be great. It's this way. The lion's den over here. And immediately they take it to King Darius. You know, just like Jesus was set up, Daniel was set up. Darius had to be true to his own decree, and so he throws Daniel into the lion's den. But I think this is wonderful. I want you to look at what Darius has going on in his heart. He's worried about his friend. And look at verse 16. Look what he says. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve, faithfully rescue you. May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, may he rescue you. You know what's happening here? Daniel's faithfulness is starting to have an impact on the king. And so King Darius goes home and he says, get away from me. I want everybody to leave me alone. I don't want anybody to prepare a feast. I don't want anybody to play any music. I'm just worried about my buddy. And he spends all night worrying about it and stewing about it. He can't sleep. He can't, he can't think about anything else. And you can almost hear him saying, I sure hope Daniel's God protects him tonight. So very early in the morning, that's not like any other stories, by the way. Very early in the next morning, he goes and he has the stone rolled away. And he calls down into the lion's den and he says, Daniel! Hey, Dan, you okay, buddy? Actually, that's not what he says. You know what he says? He says, Daniel, servant of the living God. Notice Daniel's faithfulness is continuing to work on Darius. He's now calling him the living God. Dan, did the living God protect you? Daniel replies, what kind of question is that? Of course he did. We had a fun night. Daniel was ordered to be removed from the lion's den. There wasn't a scratch on him. There wasn't a scratch on him because he trusted in God. Listen, trusting God, it's not the easiest path. It's not the easiest way to go about your life because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're going to get beat up. Sometimes people aren't going to like you because you trust God. But understand this, if you trust God when he pulls you out of this foreign land, your soul will be unscratched. And not only that, God will use your faithfulness as an example for those around you. I want to show you what verses 25 through 27 say. Because God will use your faithfulness as an example to those around you. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Throughout the world. Here's what he said. He said, peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God and He will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and His rule will never end. He rescues and saves His people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. That'll preach. Daniel didn't have to preach that sermon. Why? Because he had been working on the king's heart through his faithful life, and now Darius can't help but share that message. Let your faithfulness be an example. Darius, listen to this, this is a good progression. Darius went from talking about Daniel's God to talking about the living God, and by the end of the story, Darius is talking about an eternal God. He was talking about Daniel's God. 
Then he's talking about a real God. Now he's talking about the eternal, all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. May we live in such a way that we show people there's an eternal God. I want to sum up the whole sermon this way. I usually have a sentence that I want you to remember when you go home. Today my main point is two verses of Bible. Uh, and this is going to sum up the whole, the whole sermon, um, the whole story of Daniel chapter 6. This is how we answer the question, how do we build the future that God has for us? We've already decided we're not going to spend our time mourning the past. So how do we build the future that God has for us? My answer is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage against your soul. Be careful. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Does anybody see the story of Daniel in that text? Temporary residents and foreigners? Daniel had to learn how to live in Babylon. We've got to learn how to live in a world where Christianity isn't the default setting anymore. Don't give in to worldly desires. Don't give in to worldly desires. Don't, don't let yourself fall. Let yourself live above reproach. If we want to know how to build the future that God intends for us, instead of being resigned to mourn the past, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 is our blueprint. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to. I want you to memorize those, first, or those two verses of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Memorize those two verses of Scripture. And if you do, this week I want you to send me a text, send me an email, call me. Right? Send me a Facebook message. Tell me when you see me. Sometime this week, if you memorize those two verses of Scripture, I want you to let me know that you've done it. Can you do that for me? Fair enough? Memorize those two verses of Scripture and let me know when you've done it. I'm going to do it too. John, why don't you guys come on up? You know, there are a lot of interesting comparisons between Daniel 6 and the account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I want to share a few of them with you. Uh, we'll start with this. Selfish men sought to have Daniel killed. Selfish men sought to have Jesus killed. Both Daniel and Jesus lived above reproach. Both of their accusers had to manufacture charges. Both were sentenced to death. Both of their sentencers were deeply troubled by this. Both of them were laid in rocky tombs. But here's where the similarity ends. Keeping Daniel alive is miraculous. It's the work of God. But it pales in comparison to the power that God showed when he brought Jesus back from the dead. God protected Daniel from death. God brought Jesus back to life. Daniel walked out of the tomb because God kept him alive. Jesus burst out of the tomb because even death couldn't take his life. And I need you to know that you can't save your life. You can't redeem yourself from the things that you've done, but Jesus can, and Jesus will. You just have to call on his name. And above anything else, that's what it takes. That's what it takes to live well in a foreign land.
and build the future that God has for us. So if you need to call on the name of the Lord today, I think you should. I think you should come up as we get ready to stand and sing.